to Luke chapter 7. As we finish chapter 6, last Wednesday night, we're going through this, marching through the Gospel of Luke. We've come to chapter 7. And Luke just gives a series of a combination of teachings and healings, activities of, of Jesus. Where we left off last week in chapter 6, Jesus preached a sermon that sounded a lot like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There are a lot of similarities, there are some differences, and people differ as to whether this is another sermon he preached at a different time or whether this is just a different, um, some different wording of the Sermon on the Mount. But um, it, this one seems to have been preached on a plane, as we saw, at least that's where he was right before he started teaching, but the content lines up well with the Sermon on the Mountain. Then also uh, in Matthew's Gospel, right after the, he preached the Sermon on the Mount, you had the healing of the centurion servant, which you see here in chapter 7 as well. So um, could be could be the same thing, could be different. You can figure it out on your own. But Jesus finished speaking, and it says, when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Capernaum was a little city right on the shore um, at the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. You go up further, there's Mount Tabor, and that's the border up there of Israel. And so this is about as, uh, Capernaum is about as far north in the Galilee region as there was any kind of serious population. And it was a seaport where Jesus spent most of his life, most of his ministry anyway, not most of his life. He lived in Nazareth as a kid, which is south of the Sea of Galilee, and this is at the north tip of the Sea of Galilee. So a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him, not to Jesus, the servant was dear to the centurion. A centurion was a Roman soldier who was in charge of a hundred soldiers. So it was a prestigious position for sure. And the servant was sick and ready to die. Now, Right away, the fact that he cared about his servant was kind of amazing to begin with. Um, the law, the Roman law in those days was, if your servant got sick or wasn't working well, you'd just kill him. And so it was perfectly okay. They were just considered to be property. So this centurion was an unusual guy by their standards as to where not only was he, he loved his servant, but... In addition to that, he cared about him when he got sick and was going to die. And so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Probably figured as a Gentile, no way is Jesus going to listen to him. So he sent the Jew, some of the Jewish um, elders to go talk to Jesus. Of course, the truth is, the centurion would have had just as good of a hearing with Jesus without using the elders, but at any rate, they came to Jesus and begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. They said, this centurion's really a nice guy, for he loves our nation, which was unusual, and has built us a synagogue. So this centurion went out of his way in order to, to help the Jewish people and to be able to bless them. And those of you who have been to um, Capernaum with us might remember the synagogue where I taught the Bible study in, probably the same location as the synagogue that this centurion had built. And so the Jews were like, man, this guy's a good guy and uh, loves, uh, loves the Jewish people, even though he was a Gentile. And so Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, in verse 6, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So the centurion sent a message to Jesus and said, oh, you don't need to come. He said, I understand authority. If you can heal him, you can do it from there. 
I don't want to bother you. I don't want to take up a bunch of your time. He said, I know how authority works. If you're the authority, you tell somebody to do something and they do it. So he said, you don't need to come personally. Just say the word and I know that my servant will be healed. And so he, um, he goes on and says, uh, Jesus heard these things in verse 9. He marveled at him. That's one of the only, there are a couple times when Jesus marveled. One time he marveled at the disciples because of their lack of faith. And here he's just marveling at this Gentile who had so much faith. So he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, including those Jewish elders, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent went back to the house and found out the servant uh, had been healed. So an amazing picture of a man who had faith, even though he was a Gentile, and even though you know, he wasn't someone who had grown up in Judaism and understood that, but he understood authority. And so his servant was healed as a result. Now, right after that, the next day, it says in verse 11 that Jesus went into a city called Nain. Um, the city of Nain, there are still ruins there, and there's a few, there's a small um, Muslim group of people that live there. There's not much left of the city except a graveyard, um, and the graveyard is there. Um, but he came there, and the disciples, there was a large crowd, and it says when he got near the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. So they wouldn't bury, in those days, they wouldn't bury a body inside the city for obvious reasons. Um, it would stink, and it could bring disease and things like that, so they would typically take the body outside. So here they were carrying the body of this dead man um, in an open coffin, heading out as Jesus was coming in. And he was the, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So he was like the last thing she had. And a large crowd was with her. And verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. He wasn't rebuking her by saying, don't cry, don't be a baby. What, what he was saying with compassion was, you know, he was touched, his, her heart touched his heart, and he was just appealing to her, oh, don't weep, because he knew what he was about to do. And um, so he came, and he touched the open coffin, and he talked to the kid. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead guy sat up, started talking, and so Jesus said to his mom, there you go. I like that. He presented him to his mother. Let me introduce you to your new son. And then fear came upon all. That would scare you, kind of, you know. And they glorified God and said, A great prophet has risen up among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding region. Now next we see John the Baptist, who at this time had already been imprisoned. And he's in jail, and he's, you know, remember when, when John first you know, came on the scene, he was talking about the one that he was going to introduce. And when Jesus came out there to the wilderness by the, by the river, he said, this is the guy that I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. And proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, but he didn't understand the whole Messiah thing. No, no one did at that time. And so... Now John the Baptist is in prison with no prospect of getting out of prison, and he's just thinking, was I messed up? I mean, is, is Jesus really the Messiah? I expected he'd be setting up a kingdom pretty soon. Instead, I'm rotting away here in prison. And so he sent some of his disciples. He still had a group of guys. Some of them had followed Jesus, but others were still really loyal to John the Baptist. And he called for them, and he said, go ask Jesus are you the Messiah, or should we hold out for somebody else? And so uh, they came to him and asked that, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour, Jesus was curing people with all kinds of sicknesses and afflictions. Demons were being cast out. Blind people were, giving, were given sight. And Jesus said, go tell John what you've seen. The blind see, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, 
the poor have the gospel preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. He goes, tell them what you see, because this is obvious evidence, fulfillment of scripture, and a demonstration of power. So tell John this is what it is, but you also might want to mention to him, don't be stumbled because of me. Don't, don't get tripped up because I'm not doing things the way you thought I ought to do them, is the idea. And it's important for all of us to never judge God based on what we see him do and never jump to conclusions or get ahead of ourselves and get all bitter because God chooses to do something differently than what we would like him to do it. We've talked about this often. Prayer is about asking God for his will. Prayer is not about us ordering God as to what he needs to do for us, and if he doesn't do it, then we'll decide that, oh, God must not hear, or he must not be good. Jesus is just encouraging John the Baptist and going, I have my own way of doing things. Don't don't get tripped up by that. And so uh, he... um, told them that, and the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. And he said, what'd you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what'd you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously appareled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what'd you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. He said, when you guys... Watch John the Baptist. What'd you expect? He wasn't all dolled up. He didn't dress like an evangelist. He was a scruffy guy in camel's hair. And now he's in jail. But he said, what'd you expect? I mean, this is, this is the history of, of prophetic ministry, that if somebody's a prophet, they typically act this way. And he says, this guy is the best prophet ever. He said, Uh, He's more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, quoting Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So he says, John the Baptist was fulfilling the prophecy in Malachi chapter 3. And it was huge. He came along and prophesied and introduced the Messiah to the world. And so he said he's the greatest prophet ever. But he said, you haven't seen anything yet. Because in the kingdom of God, as his kingdom is established and as it goes on forever, you don't need prophets anymore. And no one will have to you know, suffer for the sake of their ministry or anything like that as as God's work completely unfolds, you're going to see just amazingly honored people, much more so than even John the Baptist. Now, we've talked about John the Baptist before, and we went over it in, in chapter 1 as well. There's a sense in which, well, Jesus said at one point that if people had accepted him, then John the Baptist could have been Elijah, but they didn't accept him. And so it would seem, and, and it's, it's kind of odd because in Malachi, it's prophesied that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so the question is, well, was that John the Baptist or is there yet a future unveiling? Because John the Baptist himself, when people said, are you Elijah? He goes, no, I'm not Elijah. Luke's gospel in chapter one tells us that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so we don't understand exactly how prophecy works in conjunction with people having choice because it seems that God's program was modified according to John chapter 1 when he came unto his own and his own received him not. So in a weird way, and don't trip out on this too much and I don't really want to argue with you about it later. If you disagree with me, that's fine. But it seems like he set things up so that the fulfillment, complete fulfillment of Malachi 3 could have happened if people had received the witness of John the Baptist. However, because they didn't, it would seem, and, and later on Jesus talks about this and makes reference to it later, 
that there is still going to be Elijah. And we'll see later on tonight, if we get that far, the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses and Elijah showed up. So uh, I, I think, I'm pretty convinced of this, that Moses and Elijah will be the two witnesses that John talked about in Revelation. Um, people argue, and it doesn't name them, but Elijah almost certainly is one of them because of the prophecy in Malachi, some of which hasn't been fulfilled yet. So John the Baptist played an interesting role in this whole picture and maybe could have had a bigger role had people not rejected the Messiah. So just interesting stuff. John could have been the fulfillment of Elijah. He wasn't Elijah. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah and... Elijah showed up a little later, and Elijah, I believe, is going to show up one more time before the whole thing's wrapped up. So is that confusing enough? Good. So, (laughs) verse 29, when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors, whenever you get IRS people listening, that's amazing, even the tax, sorry if you're an IRS agent, please don't investigate me. I pay my taxes, but... They justified God. Now, the word justified doesn't mean that they make him righteous. Justify, the definition of justify is to declare righteous. Jesus is said to have been justified, but he was always righteous. Um, So what they did is they were praising him, basically, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So they heard that Jesus was praising John the Baptist, but saying, man, better days are even ahead, and I'm the Messiah that John the Baptist was talking about. And so they who had been baptized by John were like, yeah, praise the Lord. And But the Pharisees and the lawyers, I mean, you can get IRS agents, but religious leaders and lawyers don't have a chance. They rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So they never bought into John, and they weren't buying into Jesus either. Now, that doesn't mean that no lawyers and no Pharisees, um, some did that we know, but in general, as a category, that was their case. And so the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, and then there's this little song, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. Um, a little kid's song probably that they, that they played in those days where if you, if you played music, they were supposed to dance or they were supposed to sing. And these kids are like saying, hey, you didn't do that. You're not playing fair. And he said, for John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified, declared righteous, by all her children. So he says, you guys are like little kids, and you don't get it. You're cheating at your own game. And, and he said, when John the Baptist came, you rejected him. And he wasn't, you know, eating the kinds of foods that you ate, and he didn't drink wine. And you, you know, criticized him for being a Nazarite or for being ascetic. And he goes, now the Son of Man comes. I'm eating. I'm drinking wine. An interesting scripture, by the way, for people who would say that, you know, drinking wine is always a sin for everyone. I think drinking wine may be stupid for almost everyone. I don't do it. But, but Jesus did drink wine clearly from what Jesus himself said. Um, And you can argue about what the alcoholic content was. But anyway, he goes, you're calling, but why would they call him a wine-bibber, a drunk, if he wasn't drinking some alcohol? So interesting. Um, A glutton, because he just ate all kinds of food, and a wine-bibber, and by the way, a friend of tax collectors and other sinners, (laughs) But he said, wisdom is justified by all her children. In other words, if you don't have wisdom, then you can't recognize wisdom. If you get it, if you have a relationship with God, if you are someone who is a child of God, 
then you will understand things that some other people won't understand. But basically saying, what you guys are into is arguing and criticizing and ripping into anything that's contrary to whatever you want to believe. And may it never be said of us that we are the kind of people who decide what's right and wrong based on what we already think. See, if, if you're already certain of everything that you believe, and you don't want to listen to anything that might be contrary to that, um, that's not wise. Because the truth is, in some areas, you are wrong. I'm not, but you are. No. no, we're all wrong. And when we get to heaven, we'll find out how wrong we were. And so wisdom takes a humility to just go, I'm open. I'll listen to what God has to say. I'll ask him to help me discern this. A person who never changes their mind is a fool. Um, we need to change. But you don't want to change just for the sake of changing because you don't want to trade away something that you know that's correct for something that's incorrect. But that's where wisdom is involved, and that's how the Holy Spirit wants to help us. We have to learn to listen to the Spirit and to keep an open mind and heart to whatever he wants to reveal to us. And it's all going to be, you know, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, but now we know in part. Understanding that we know in part is one of the first steps toward wisdom. Realizing that you don't know everything. Finding out what you don't know is a good step toward learning some things that you do know. Now it says that... Uh, Verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. <clears throat> and he went to the Pharisee's house, and this Pharisee's name was Simon, we find later in verse 40. So he goes to the guy's house and sat down to eat, and a woman in the city who was a sinner, um, we don't know the nature of her sins, but they were kind of scandalized that Jesus would have anything to do with her. When she knew that Jesus was there in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. Now, when they were sitting at the table, they would lie uh, inclined with their feet away from the table and their, and their face up to a low table that they would eat at. So she came to his feet and sat there and just began to cry. And as her tears were falling on his feet, she became self-conscious, didn't have anything to wipe it with, so she was actually using her hair. And then wanting to freshen them up, took this expensive ointment that she had and anointed his feet. And Simon the Pharisee, when, who had invited him over to his house, he was thinking to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Kind of foolish to point out anyone as a sinner because all have sinned, and Simon didn't recognize his own sin. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, teacher, say it. <laughs> Jesus had just been reading his mind. He said there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have rightly judged. Now this, for the Pharisee, wouldn't be unusual because the rabbis often taught by asking questions using kind of a parabolic form and then as they dialogued back and forth, much Socrates used a similar method that we call the Socratic method, but the, the Jewish rabbis would do this as well, engage conversation. And so he says, okay, two guys owe money to a guy. One of them owes 10 times as much as the other one. He forgives them both. Who loves him more? And he goes, man, I guess the guy that got forgiven the bigger debt, he probably, the other guy probably wished he had borrowed more. Uh, in the first place. And so he, uh, he said, yep, you're right. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and 
You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, which was a customary thing in those days, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven." For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. An amazing, touching story of Jesus having compassion on someone that everyone else thought was disgusting. Um, and it's a sad story about a Pharisee who didn't get how disgusting he was, who didn't realize and recognize his need for, for sin and for forgiveness. And some commentators have speculated that perhaps Simon had been sick and Jesus had healed him, and that's one reason why he would invite him over, and he's comparing the, the forgiveness that this woman was experiencing compared to the meager attitude that Simon had toward uh, Jesus at the time and just going, you know, kind of as what Paul said in Romans, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. And we should never feel like, oh, I'm such a horrible sinner, I can't come to Jesus. That's what it takes to come to Jesus, is to realize that you're a horrible sinner. Now, uh, Matthew, Mark, and John have a similar story to this. And sometimes you'll see people who want to prove that the Bible has contradictions. They'll bring it up because some of the facts differ. In uh, Matthew and Mark's account, and actually in John's as well, this event happens in Bethany at the house of a guy named Simon the leper. Um, John doesn't say Simon the leper, but Matthew and Mark do. So this case, it's Simon the Pharisee. So people go, wait a minute, this would seem to be in Capernaum or somewhere in the Galilee area um, at a Pharisee's house, and the other one is in Bethany, which was down behind the Mount of Olives down near Jerusalem in the southern part of Israel. So they go, which was it? And was Simon a leper or was he um, a Pharisee? And the the truth is, we don't know for sure. I'm not going to be dogmatic on it. Most likely, this was at least two separate events. And one of them happened down in, in um, Bethany. And actually, John's gospel identifies Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, as being the woman who came in with ointment and anointed Jesus. And Jesus then said, you know, the disciples were going and Judas in particular, was saying, oh, that's expensive ointment. We could have used this money. You know, we could have sold it and made a bunch of money and given it to the poor or whatever. But, but Judas actually was hoping to rip it off because he was the accountant for the disciples. It's kind of interesting that Jesus picked a guy like Judas and made him in charge of the money. But, you know, Jesus knew everything, and really he doesn't value money quite the same way that we do. But... The, the account in John happens right before Jesus goes to the cross, and he congratulates Mary, and in Matthew and Mark as well, it seems to be later on, and he mentions that she is anointing him for his burial. And there was no story about, hey, a guy was, two guys were forgiven, who loves most? So the point of the story is different. Probably the location was different, and probably Simon was a different Simon. Now you go, oh, wait, that's really a coincidence. I don't know too many Simons. Well, Simon was a very, very common name in those days. There's four or five Simons in the New Testament, two of them that are disciples, Simon Peter and Simon the Zealot. And then, and then there are other Simons as well throughout. Judas's dad's name was Simon. So there were a lot of people named Simon in those days, so probably two different stories. But don't miss the point. It's all about forgiveness. And it's all about the fact that Jesus wants to accept people who no one else wants to accept them. And it's kind of like what we talked about Sunday in church, where 
there's this rejection that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, rejected like Jesus, but also incredibly valuable and precious in God's sight. And that's the way this woman was, because she understood that she needed something that she couldn't do for herself. And so her sins were forgiven, and, and her life got a fresh start. And I, I think that's beautiful. And whenever you start looking down at anyone, you're running the risk of being Simon the Pharisee, running the risk of thinking somehow that you deserve grace more than someone else does. And I don't deserve grace any more than anyone else. It's not harder for God to show grace to someone who is a worse person. Um, it's grace. It's free, and it's, there's, it's enough for everyone. Now, chapter 8, it lists some of the women who were just ministering to Jesus. And it says he was going preaching, and uh, the 12 were with him. And there were certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, like Mary Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. doesn't necessarily mean it was seven demons. Seven was the number they would use at completion. It's like saying she had a whole pack of demons. She was full of demons or whatever. Um, now, some people, through tradition, have got the idea that Mary Magdalene is this woman who cried on his feet, wiped his feet with her hair, and anointed her, but there is no biblical support for that and no real solid historical support. But Mary Magdalene, after having demons cast out of her, um, hung out with the disciples and Jesus. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, a steward was the most trusted servant in the house who would basically manage the house. So this guy who had that place for Herod Antipas, who was an evil guy, his wife was actually on the road helping support Jesus, probably um, donating to keep him, keep him going and keep him surviving. Susanna and many others who provided for him from their substance. Now he tells the parable of the sower. And you're pretty familiar with this parable. Um, he said, a sower went out, verse 5, to sow his seed. That a sow means to plant, if you don't know that. And some fell by the wayside, trampled down, and the birds ate it. Some fell on rocks, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it, but others fell on good ground, sprang up and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he tells the story and he says, a guy's planting seeds. He throws some of it on the side of the road, birds eat it. He throws some in the rocks, springs up, but it can't get root, it's gone. He throws some in an area that's okay, except there's a bunch of thorns, and the thorns come and choke it out. And then he put some on some good cultivated soil, and it bore fruit. Now you go, why would a guy plant seeds in all those places? Well, we'll see when we get to the point of the story. But before he does that, as he says, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear, the disciples were like, huh? <laughs> they didn't get it. So they tried to get kind of a private um, interpretation of it. They asked him, what does this parable mean? And he said, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. I'm quoting Isaiah chapter 6. Now, when he says mystery, a mystery is something that at one point wasn't known and now is being revealed. So what he's saying to them is, you know, I'm telling stories because people who just want to argue with me or whatever, it just baffles them. And if they're not going to accept me, then they don't need to understand my stories, so they'll have another reason to argue with me. But he said, to you, the mystery is going to be revealed. You can understand. You have the capacity. You've already put yourself in a relationship with me, and so this is no problem for you. And then he interpreted the parable he said, now the parable is this. And by the way, as I mentioned in our introduction to Luke, again, Luke has way more parables than any of the other Gospels. Luke has 23 parables, and 17 of them don't appear in any other Gospel, just in Luke. 
A parable is a story that, uh, the word parable means to place alongside of, and it's a story that you hold up to reality and it demonstrates a lesson. Generally, a parable is told to teach one major point. And, and it, just like a, some of the old mother goose, you know, stories and things like that, that a whole story was told, but it was really to tell one moral of the story. And that's similar to what parables are like, and so now he interprets it. He says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. And those by the wayside are ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have... uh, no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. The ones who fell among thorns are those who, when they've heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word, with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. So he says, a lot of people hear the word. A lot of people hear what God has to say. A lot of people are crowding around listening to Jesus preach. A lot of people today attend church at one time or another, hear things about God, and listen. But the Word of God is the, the, the Word of God is perfect, and it doesn't return void. There's nothing wrong with the Word. Just like the seeds in all of these cases, the seed was fine. The problem is whether or not the soil was healthy enough soil in order to maintain any kind of a productive um, fruitfulness. And so he goes, some people hear the word, and it's like, as he says, Satan comes and you know takes the word out of their hearts so, lest they believe and be saved. So in some cases, people hear it, but it's like it goes in one ear and out the other. They don't want to spend time with it. They're not thinking about it. They're not considering it. They're just basically in one ear and out the other. And Satan loves to see that happen. It's one reason why we really started our push on home fellowships, because it's easy to sit there and listen to somebody preach, but it's so important that we actually do something with what we learn. And and when we get together and talk about it, it helps that to germinate. It helps us to soak in a little bit. There are people, and you know this, I... I'm driving in my car, and I'll have K-Wave on, and two or three Bible studies while I'm driving, and I can't, I know who was speaking because, you know, I know who speaks at that time, but I'm like, I don't have a clue as to what they were saying. It's easy for teaching to just go in one ear and out the other unless you're interacting with it. And so Satan would love to have you just hear it and forget it. It's over. Other people were were those who got all excited about it, but they didn't sink their roots deeply. They respond to the word right away and go, oh, yeah, 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 I'm into it. And you've seen that. Maybe you've been there in the past where you get really excited about God, but then you just kind of, temptation comes along, and it's just kind of, you're over it. Not as excited as you once were. It's one of the reasons why I don't make a big push for altar calls. And I always, every Sunday, I give people a chance to come forward and pray to accept Christ. But I don't like have them, okay, everybody, you know, I don't do the, okay, everybody, no, no peeking, raise your hand. Okay, I see there's somebody here, so I'm not going to look stupid if I tell them to come forward. Now you need to get up and walk down the aisle while people clap and we're singing just as I am or come just as you are. And, I, and I'm not, there's nothing wrong with that necessarily. Many of us, I'm sure got saved responding to an altar call. I actually did myself, but I was asleep, and I accidentally went forward. Seriously. I thought church was over. I got up and walked forward and ended up in the prayer room, and God spoke to me there, and I got saved. Um, any, I'm not against anything that gets people saved, okay? And so I'm very supportive of all efforts like the Harvest Crusade, Billy Graham and Franklin and different people who do that and even churches who do it. But here's why I don't do it. It's because it's real easy to get somebody to respond emotionally 
when you just preached a message that was that was maybe touched them in some way and they're starting to cry and you're like okay now's the time and you you're cranking them in and they're they're coming down forward and the truth is the overwhelming majority of people who respond to that kind of an altar call do not get saved they don't ever end up in a church regularly walking with the lord or growing in him the one thing that they all have in common is they all think they got saved they think they tried it and it didn't take and to me that's a horrible thing and so personally if you're like if you don't want to get saved badly enough to bother sticking around after the service and just coming up without a big pitch um, you're probably not ready and because i'm concerned i don't want people to get excited and emotional and then not really let it sink in and so i mean a lot of people get saved in our church and they never did come forward i see over a period of time um they just start sharing with me all god's doing in their life and and i go well, wow you know when did you accept the lord and they go i don't know i've been going to church here for like three or four months and sometime during that time at some point it just sunk in and they didn't have one magic moment but now they obviously know that they are a child of god and i think most people that's how they get saved I praise the Lord for others and people who share with people and then they accept the Lord and everything. Usually, though, there's been a lot of planting and a lot of watering for that to happen. And I think most people who come forward, say, at a Harvest Crusade, um, many of them, their friends have been witnessing to them, praying for them. And, and so all that is doing is giving them a, a night to remember kind of a thing. And again, I thank God for everybody who responds to the word but this is why I'm not big on pulling a response out of people. I mean, like, for instance, having everybody bow their heads so you don't see who gets saved. Hey, if you're embarrassed to even say that you want to get saved, I don't know. That sounds like more rocky soil to me. And then as he, as he talked here, but again, that's just me. I'm just explaining. I'm not saying that in some dogmatic way. Um, but he says, on the thorny ground, they were choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life. No fruit comes. So there are some who, they're doing okay, but they just care too much about other stuff. And so they walk with the Lord. They're into the Word. God's starting to change them. They're doing pretty good. But at some point, work kind of pulls them away from the things of the Lord. Uh, maybe they go through trials in their life that are difficult, and that causes them to kind of slip, or they just flake, or they're lazy, or they work on Sunday, or they and and somewhere along the line, something comes in that causes them to just, you know, get choked out, and and for for this to happen, and and so now. Again, I, I'm, this isn't necessarily an argument for that you can lose your salvation um, because that's not the point that he's teaching. And you can get all kinds of problems when you start interpreting parables and using details of the parable to teach something other than the central message of the parable. So for me, as I've told you before, the whole idea of whether or not you can lose your salvation, it's a difficult thing for me because there are a lot of warnings in Scripture that sound like that. And I also have to say, some of these people would sound like what we would consider to be saved, and they obviously weren't considered to be saved. If you're saved and then you quit, then you probably weren't saved at all, because eternal life is what salvation's all about. So if it doesn't last forever, then it was never eternal. If you buy something with a lifetime warranty and the company goes bankrupt, you never had a lifetime warranty because it didn't last for your life. And the same thing with salvation. But at any rate, his point is about the good soil. And look what he says. They heard the word with a noble and good heart. They kept it. And they bear fruit with patience. Those are things that he says are characteristic of good soil. Their heart's prepared, they're ready to receive, they're willing to be patient and take the time that it takes to grow. And, and 
these are people who very conscientiously are in it for the long haul. And you can tell who those people are because they bear fruit. You see results coming forth from their life. Please don't be discouraged if you're a pretty new Christian and you see other people who seem more excited than you are, or you feel maybe you've been a Christian for 50 years and you go, man, I don't know, I'm afraid. I'm never all pumped up like some people are, and I, I, I feel frustrated sometimes. No, the fact that you've hung in there, that's fruit. That's amazing. If you care about people, that's fruit. If you even are worried about whether or not you're a child of God, that's a real strong indication that the Holy Spirit is inside of you. But just realize not everyone who hears and not everyone who responds is actually going to make it for the long haul. And again, not making too much of this, but it's interesting that three-fourths of the people who were touched by the Word um, didn't make it. So that should give us a little pause, but everyone who comes on Wednesday night is in for sure. <laughs> so now, in the beginning with verse 16, another parable, and it ties in with the other one in a way. It says, no one when he's lit a lamp covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed. He sets it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. But nothing is secret that will not be revealed or anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear, for whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. He goes, if you have a light, you don't stick it under the bed. If you have a light, you don't put a bowl on top of it. A light is there to make light. And this is... Over in Matthew's gospel, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about this and said, don't hide your light under a bushel. Put it out there where people can see it. And he says, let your light so shine before men that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. This is the same kind of an idea. He goes, a light is for shining. And so he says, pay attention to how you hear. Pay attention to the way that you respond to the Word. It's not just hearing the Word. There will be a lot of people who never get to heaven who know the Bible better than any of us. There will be plenty of people who would, could argue theology all day long, very effectively. And there are going to be people like the thief on the cross who knew almost nothing, but he said, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that was it. And he's going to be in heaven. So what Jesus is saying is, don't just try to be right. Don't just worry about how much stuff you can learn. Make sure that you're concerned about how you hear and about fruitfulness that comes forth from it. Again, that's why I, I've just been so burdened for our church that we not just become a teaching center if we wanted, I could just teach a Bible study every night. And then you could listen to K-Wave all day long and download podcasts and things like that. And, oh, you could just get saturated with content. And there are a whole lot of people, that's what they want. That's all they really want is to know stuff. But I'm concerned for those people because I believe that there might be people who, who think I preach a great message every week but who aren't applying it to their lives and aren't really living in fellowship with others and, and allowing the Word of God to affect actually how they live. Instead, it's just an intellectual exercise. And that's where Jesus is talking here too because there were a lot of religious people in those days who knew a lot of stuff. But he said, make sure that the Word is sinking down in your heart. You can't do it without the Word. But you need to do it with the Word, because I think a lot of times Christians today are a mile wide and an inch deep. We need to go deeper into the things of God. We need to, to reflect on them and meditate on them and, and, and look more into them instead of just going, checking it off as we go down the list and saying what we know. It's why the discussion questions that I write for every bulletin are meant to bring out discussion and thought. I don't just say, name the four Gospels and you write those down. That means nothing. 
It's taking the Word of God and applying it that really means something, and that's what Jesus is saying. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox, and we'll see if we can get through another chapter or so. Thank you. You're done with that? You're over that? Okay, cool. Um, then his mother and his brothers came to him. Brothers? I thought, Jesus, I thought Mary was perpetually a virgin. Guess not. <laughs> and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus didn't give a special place to his relatives, biological relatives. By the way, if you wonder what a Catholic explanation of Jesus' brothers are, um, they postulate that Joseph was probably older and maybe had kids, and these kids were Mary's stepkids and therefore not biologically related. Um, But a much simpler explanation is, since it said, we saw it in Luke, that Mary did not have physical relations with Joseph until after Jesus was born. Um, Therefore, the the clearest explanation is that they had kids um, after Jesus. Jesus was the oldest. But Jesus here is saying, you know what? I'm not impressed with blood. You know, we, we sometimes say blood is thicker than water. But to Jesus, what mattered is Hey, who's, wa- who's walking with me? Who's hanging with me? Who's listening to me? That's my family. Some of you have had to experience being alienated from some in your family, and you find that I'm much closer to the family of God than I am to some of my own family. Well, that's just natural. Jesus had that same thing happening. And so... Praise God when your relatives also love the Lord, and that's a blessing, and that's a real deep, deep uh, fellowship at that point. But here Jesus was just kind of saying, his brothers didn't believe in him until after he rose from the dead. And that's when then they got cued in. Even Mary wasn't totally, you could tell she wasn't completely understanding what was happening herself. Uh, but Jesus just said, you people who hear the word of God and do it, not just hear it, not just know it, not who can answer a test about it, but you hear it and do it, you're my family. Now, next he goes out with the disciples in a boat, and he said, let's cross over to the other side of the lake. They were heading across the Sea of Galilee over um, to what would be the east shore of the Sea of Galilee, we think. And so as they were going... He fell asleep, and the wind came, and the disciples were scared to death, and they were in jeopardy, and he was sleeping. And so they woke him up, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. (laughs) Then he turned his attention to the disciples. Where is your faith? See, Jesus had said, let's go over to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's go out in the middle of the lake and drown. He was also teaching them that he was the Messiah. And so, I mean, he wasn't going to let anything happen. But funny thing about Jesus, God always does this. Sometimes he just likes to act like he's sleeping to see what we'll do. And so sometimes you're going through a tough time and you pray and you go, "Ah, it doesn't even seem like God is here. And sometimes he's just messing with you to see where your faith is. Because faith is what comes when you can't see the answer in front of your face. It's doing it in the dark. It's doing it when you're blindfolded. And so he goes, you guys had a great chance. Where's your faith? And they were afraid, thought maybe he'll just bring the storm back. And they marveled and said to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. Um, Little lesson it seems like God's not doing anything in your life right now and you're really worried about it and it seems like he's asleep in the back of the boat, just curl up next to him. Maybe this isn't the time for anything to happen. Maybe it's nap time. And, and I think clearly that was. And how cool it would have been if they go, Jesus is sleeping. Let's move over, guys. Let's go to sleep. Let's take a nap. There have been times in my life when I know that I was striving like crazy And it seemed like God wasn't there, and it was frustrating. And in reality, he was just taking a nap because the timing wasn't quite right. And I wished I had enjoyed that. It's kind of like, 
you know, guys lose their job, and then they, they're just so worried about losing their job, they don't ever bother taking a day off, go walk on the beach, drive up to the mountains or something like that. It's like, I can't enjoy myself because, I don't know, you know, I'm out of work and everything. And then they find a job, and they're like, man, I need a vacation. You just had a, you just had a year vacation, and you never took a day off. I mean, uh, there's a place for just saying, okay, um, even when you're sick, I guess God wants me just to lay down and relax. Um, maybe that's his plan. And so it's a great story, though, and you see Jesus' power, obviously. When they got to the other side, to Gadara, which is, on the, which is opposite Galilee, that is, it's actually, if you're at Capernaum, so you're up at the top of the Sea of Galilee, Gadara's over to your left. Toward, it sits down below the... Um, the big plateau up there, the Golan Heights. So it's down there in the coastline. Uh, if you go with us to Israel, we, we, we go there and, and see it. And So they went there. There's this guy who's just going nuts. He's, he's, he's got tons of demons in him. His, his name was Legion, but you don't know exactly how many demons, but just many demons. And they had, you know, he was causing a lot of trouble, yelling, screaming and everything. And, and uh, so he commanded the, the spirit to come out of the man. In verse 29, it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. This guy was bad news. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? He said, Legion, because there's many. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. So apparently... Now, you can read over in Revelation chapter 20 about the abyss. It's the place where Satan and his angels are tied up for a thousand years during the millennium. So it was a place of torture. Probably when demons were cast out, Jesus would often send them to the abyss. But, these, but you can't be too certain because there isn't real clear teaching on that. But they were just going, please, please don't send us to the abyss. And then they said, instead, you know, send us into these pigs. So they were begging him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Weird story, but the demons went into this herd of pigs, which obviously pigs were unclean, and there in Israel they should not have been raising pigs. There would be no reason for it. They didn't have baseball gloves yet. So it would be only to eat stuff they weren't supposed to eat. But um, he threw them into the pigs, and the pigs just ran off a cliff, and there's a cliff there by Gadara now where, you know, it's a real clear place where it easily could have happened. So these pigs committed suicide. No doubt the demons then went to the abyss. So Jesus killed two birds or a lot of pigs with one stone. Um, sorry for you animal lovers. And there are people who have a problem with this passage um, just because why were innocent animals destroyed? Look, they weren't dogs, okay? There were pigs, but uh, pass the bacon. So <laughs> people were afraid. The guy is like totally in his right mind. Now he's got his clothes on. And they, those who saw it, verse 36, told them by the means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. The whole multitude, all surrounding Gadara, asked him to depart from them. So they were scared. They're like, get out of here. So he got in his boat and left. And the guy who had the demons cast out him said, let me go, I want to hang with you. And he said, Jesus said, instead, no, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Interesting that a guy who was naked and crazy and consumed with demons became really the first missionary. And right away, it's like, okay, got your clothes on. You know I healed you. Go tell people. And it was kind of cool that he said, instead of go, come with me, you'll be a great opening act. Instead, it's like, no, man, go to the people that care about you and let them know what I've done. That's really, that's really cool. Uh, verse 40, when Jesus returned, the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And behold, so he went across the sea, went through the storm, the whole thing with the disciples, being scared, him sleeping and everything else, because he had an appointment 
to cast demons out of this one guy. They got right back in the boat and headed back to the other side. And so as they came, a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue, one of the leaders there, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter who was 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitude started crowding around him, and a woman who had, who had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. Notice that's a detail that only Luke puts in. Luke, the doctor, goes, yep, HMOs didn't cut it. Other do- All they did was take her money, and then they were done with her. But she, and notice the connection. He's on his way to see Jairus' daughter, who's 12 years old. A woman had for 12 years been hemorrhaging and therefore unclean and people couldn't touch her. Imagine the misery of her life for the 12 years while Jairus was enjoying his little girl for 12 years. It's just an interesting connection there anyway. And uh, so this lady came up behind and touched the border of his garment. Now there's crowds everywhere, but immediately she stopped bleeding for the first time in 12 years. And Jesus said, who touched me? And everybody goes, not me, not me. And Peter goes, uh, excuse me, look at all these people. What, what are you talking about? Who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. He knew that someone had touched him and been healed. So when the woman saw that she was not hidden, he probably looked straight at her and said, somebody touched me. And she was like, ew, okay. And she came trembling and fell down before him and declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and now and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, somebody came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, Your daughter's dead. Quit bothering the teacher. I'm sure at this point he was saying, if he had got there on time, he'd got this woman interrupting him, and then he's healing her, and she's hanging on to him and everything, and this is terrible. But they said, eh, don't even make him come. It's, it's all over. But Jesus said, don't be afraid. Only believe, and she will be made well. And he came into the house. He permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl, There were a whole bunch of professional mourners there. They would hire people to come and cry. Now all wept and mourned for her, but he said, don't weep. She isn't dead, but she's sleeping. And they ridiculed him. Notice how their heart is into the morning. They're like, oh, no, no. And he says, oh, she's asleep. Oh, you idiot. And they're laughing at him. That's why he didn't want them in the house. They knew that she was dead, but he put them all outside took her by the hand and called, saying, Little girl, arise. And then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. It leaked out. (laughs) But here, a woman who had been miserable for 12 years, a little girl who had been happy for 12 years, and Jesus reached out to both of them, along with, along with lepers and other people who were dead and people who you know, were demon-possessed and people who had all sorts of ailments. And we see Jesus just going through and touching people and being moved with compassion toward them and healing them. And he has that same heart today. And if we have his heart, then we too... We'll have compassion when we see people who are hurting. We see people who are being rejected by others. And when we see those who just, you know, are hopeless, um, we will care. We maybe don't have all the strength that he had. Um, We'll see in the next chapter, he talked about it takes a lot of prayer and fasting for some of these guys. But we have the Spirit working in us, and we at least need to show his heart. Because he didn't heal everyone. But he may want to heal people who we come in contact with. And so we certainly want to ask that according to his will, that we would, you know, that he would do that, that he could, he, Jesus is still able to heal. 
We're going to come into a time of celebrating communion now. And so the men can go back and get the stuff, and let's just pray. Lord, we thank you that we see over and over again going through this gospel of Luke, not only your incredible teaching and your exhortation to actually live this stuff and to let it sink in and and take root, but also this heart that you have to reach out and touch those who need your healing touch. And God, we thank you that you are able And with those that we know are loved ones who are now struggling with various diseases, they know you, we're not worried about them. If you want to take them to heaven, that's better for them. But at the same time, Lord, I know how your heart of compassion is reaching out to those who are in the middle of struggling with sickness. We think of Bill Cravenor, who's really been battling this lately with his cancer. And Lord, you could say the word just like you have so many times before. We've asked and we'll continue to ask, Lord, because we, we know how much you love Bill and how much he loves you. And we know how much productivity he still has ahead of him. But Lord, please show your heart of compassion to Bill. Help he and Pam to just sense your surrounding them with your spirit and your work of healing in his life. We just ask humbly, we're not ordering you. Lord, we thank you for Dana and how you're working in her body, and we just pray for that continued healing touch that would be on her. I thank you for her faithfulness that she's here playing drums, leading worship. She's in church all the time, and God, she's just not letting cancer destroy her. And God, I pray that you would, you, you tell us that by your stripes we're healed. And so we pray for a full and complete healing of this girl that we love so much. And Lord, for others in the body, we're all thinking of them now. We're thinking of some of the people that we know who are just hurting, some emotionally, mentally, others physically, some financially. Um, We lift all those needs up to you. And as we are going to partake in the Lord's Supper, we want to appeal to you for your healing touch, that by your stripes we would see the same kinds of healing, the same kinds of of love and compassion that you demonstrated as you were here on this earth and that you still have today and you still desire to do. And so... We entrust you for all of these needs that we have, for these people who we love. And God, as we enter into this time of celebrating your body and blood, thank you for what you've done. We know that by your stripes we are healed. And you're so good to us, God. You've just been amazing. And so we want to remember what that cost as we celebrate what you did that proves to us how valuable we are to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.